So the question that I want to think about today is why bother? Why bother? Okay. And when I ask why bother, I mean why bother asking someone to keep the toilet seat down if you know they're just going to leave it up? Why bother? Here's another one. Here's another why bother. Why bother asking someone to pick their clothes off the floor if you know that in the next day they're going to leave their hoodie there on, the, there on the ground? Here's another why bother. Why bother asking someone to change their mind if you know they're not going to? Why bother? Here's another one. Why bother, um, why bother confronting someone about an area of their life if you know it's not going to make a bit of difference and it's only going to mean rejection and suffering for you? That's the question. Why bother? Right? Because we all experience moments in our life where we're faced with resistance. And we know that no matter what we do, that person is going to resist us. And so that's the question I want to explore today, is why, why bother? We're journeying, journeying through the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me into the, the Gospel of Mark, into Mark chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 1. Okay, we're going to start with verse 1. And I'm going to read verse, verses 1 through 6. Okay, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. This is Jesus. This is about Jesus. Jesus, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, and a, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. We're going to read, we're going to go through um, Mark chapter 6 all the way to verse 29 today. And I'm going to split this up into three sections. And each section is about a different type of resistance. One, the first resistance we're encountering here in this uh, first six verses is unbelief. And the second we're going to encounter is a type of rejection in the, in the second part. And then the last thing we're going to encounter is, is the grudge. We're going to encounter a grudge. And these are all forms of resistance that Jesus faces. Now, um, what is the context of this chapter? One of, the, one of the important ways to read the Bible, and this is why... I'm, I'm actually covering a lot of uh, text today, a lot of, a lot of scripture, is because sometimes we can take scripture out of context. I think of the, the term I've used, we can hijack scripture, hold it for ransom, and make it say whatever we want it to say, right? And so the idea is we want to read it in context so that it's in its surroundings, and we're actually reading what the scripture is meant to be teaching us, okay? And the way that you, the way that you understand context is by looking at the environment of scripture. So what is the environment of scripture that we're encountering? Well, um, Muhammad just preached last week about the healing of a bleeding woman and then the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. And the importance of that passage is about faith. This is about how God partners with us in faith. 
Okay? And God partners with a bleeding woman and says, hey, I want to honor your faith. I want to reward that faith by healing you. Because God, like Jesus, likes to partner with those who trust him. And if you think about it, that's like the essence of how relationship works. Relationships operate based on trust. And now you have the, the contrast to it. In chapter 6, now you have the opposite. Because Jesus arrives in his hometown. And as a result of being in his hometown, he begins teaching, which has been what he does and then people ask, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are mighty works done by his hands? Because his reputation has spread. And they're, they're like, well, look, we know he's a carpenter. We know he's the son of Mary. And we know his brothers and sisters. And maybe his brother works at the bar. You know what I mean? They're like, we, we, get, we know who this guy is. We know exactly what he's about. And that familiarity not only breeds contempt, it breeds unbelief. And I think we get this. We understand this idea. Okay, we understand this idea that there's something about familiarity that prevents us because when you are familiar with something, it's a pattern, right? And a pattern is something that's repeated. And once you have enough repetitions of seeing someone a certain way, it's really difficult to break out of it. And I think one easy example for me um, is thinking about uh, my brother, my little brother. My little brother's 14 months younger than me. And for most of our early life, all of our early life up until around 12 or 13, I was bigger than him and faster than him and stronger than him and most of all, better at basketball. <laughs> and then one day um, when he went through, as he started to go through puberty, um, he got taller than me and stronger than me and faster than me and then most importantly, better at basketball. <laughs> and so we would play one-on-one -on -one, um, in our backyard and, uh, and I remember very distinctly one day, um, he was driving past me, and I'm like, how did this guy, how is this guy better than me? He cannot be better, because up to that point, the pattern of my life, my relationship with him, is I was superior to him in every way. And all of a sudden, he was now superior to me, and I could not handle it. And I pushed him from behind into the rocks, right? That's like the pivotal story of my childhood with my brother, is um, envy and jealousy and comparison. Because, I, because that familiarity bred, in that instance, a type of contempt. And I'm looking at you, and some of you are nodding and smiling because you have either been the oppressor in that sense or you have been the, you have been the victim of that, right? Because of that pattern of familiarity. And anyone who's grown up in any kind of family recognizes that the hardest environment to change in is within a family context. Because that familiarity breeds a type of unbelief. And even for me, in my, own, uh, in my own marriage, I mean, marriage is one of the di most difficult contexts to change. When I've experienced change, I know at times it's hard for Judy to accept it. She's like, I, I can't. You're, you're responding in a way that, 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 that breaks the pattern, and I'm not sure I can accept that. And vice versa. There's sometimes Judy is, um, like, behaves in a way that I'm surprised by, and I'm like, wait, I can't handle that. You know, I can't handle it. You need to go back to the way you were before, even if it's positive. Okay, even if it's positive. And so we just need to recognize, like, there, are, there is resistance to change for the, the people and things in our life that we, are most, that we think we are most familiar with. And I want to take this a step further. Because we are an individualistic culture, and we have a trouble understanding how communities work and operate. Because the type of unbelief that Jesus' uh, hometown had was not an individual unbelief. Okay? It was a corporate unbelief. It was a culture of skepticism that they had to this particular person. And the, the result, the outcome 
of that unbelief was, it says, and he could do, in verse 5, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I don't know about you, but I don't experience many miracles. Okay? And I think we live in a culture where, um, for the most part, in our daily lives, we don't encounter the supernatural. We don't have a sense of the supernatural. So I wonder if uh, the, the phenomenon of Jesus' hometown isn't just, doesn't just apply to Nazareth, okay? Doesn't just apply to Nazareth, but, but can apply across um, a, t- a time period, okay? To a first world country, to the, to the Western industrialized countries where not only uh, are we, do we think we're familiar, but we, um, we are skeptical of the supernatural, okay? We live in a culture that is skeptical of the supernatural. And that might explain why we don't experience or encounter or see the supernatural or miracles because we live in a culture of unbelief, okay? We live in a culture that's skeptical about the supernatural. And I think it's worth considering for us how that affects the way we encounter the supernatural today and how we think about Jesus. Because for me, this is normal. Not having many miracles is normal. And that was normative for Jesus' hometown. And I wonder what the disciples were thinking as Jesus was encountering this kind of resistance, because they're like, wow, up to this point, Jesus has been a rock star. Everywhere, crowds. But here in his hometown, he's powerless. Why did Jesus want his disciples to see that? I'm not, I'm not sure, but it's a good question. But we know what happens next. Let me read verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Two tunics, bad. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so let's set this, uh, these disciples being set out sent out. Let's put this in context. Back in Mark chapter 3, which we've talked about earlier, Jesus appointed disciples in the first place and said the purpose of them was to be with Jesus. They were to be Jesus's entourage, if you will, right? And everything that he was going to do, he was going to, he was going to have, he was going to model for them what he was going to eventually have them do, right? And one of the things that he modeled for them is he was going to send them out to preach. And that's what they do here. They are going to proclaim repentance. And everything that he's asking his disciples to do, he has modeled himself. And so that's one important thing about discipleship is that when we make disciples, we are modeling for other people what we're supposed to be doing. And he also, he sends them out two by two. He sends them out in groups. They're not to go out alone. You know, we know uh, Mormons do this. We know Jehovah's Witnesses do that. We, and I appreciate their their uh, strategy for doing this because they're imitating what Jesus did. Um, he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. So here's another aspect of modeling. He also, after modeling, he delegates, right? Jesus is the boss. You know, he, he models himself. Well, this, not all bosses do this, but he models himself the behavior that he wants from the people that he calls, right? You could say his employees, right? His disciples. 
Um, and then he delegates. And he delegates authority to them. So the authority, the authority he has himself to cast out demons, he also delegates to his disciples. He gives them the same authority. And then he's very explicit. And this is the hard part because this is like the anti-Boy Scout thing, right? Boy Scouts, you're supposed to be prepared. And he asks them, well, this is a different kind of preparation. I want you to take less stuff. I want you to take as little stuff as possible. Because part of your mission is to be dependent on the hospitality of others. And again, this is something Jesus modeled because he dined with all kinds of people. He was reliant upon the hospitality of other people. And then it's really interesting because it also says, um, when you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So whenever, you re whenever hospitality receives you, you don't look for a better house. You don't look for a place with better food. Okay? You stay at the place that welcomes you. And you don't move on. And so there's something about um, this dependence that you continue to be dependent. And then here's the last part. And this is the rejection aspect. Verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Okay, as a testimony against them. And I think this is fascinating because, again, this is not about individual unbelief. This is about the corporate unbelief or the corporate rejection of a town. And what Jesus is saying is it's okay to move on. You don't have to stay there. If someone won't receive you, you don't have to stay there. In fact, I want you to shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And I think for us, when we encounter resistance, okay, I'll speak for myself. I'm, I'm using the sermonic we. When I encounter resistance, my instinct is to say, well, this is a testimony against me because I haven't testified well enough. Okay? Something I've said or something about me is the problem. But that's not actually what Jesus is saying here. If someone rejects you, it's not, a, it's, not a, uh, it's not a me problem. You know, it's not a messenger problem, okay? It's an audience problem, okay? They are the problem. And you shake off the dust on your feet because it's a they problem, right? And I think it's very easy for us, it's easy for me to internalize that as a, as a me problem, as a problem with either the message or the messenger. But it's actually the, a problem with the audience, and that's, that's what Jesus is saying. And I think what's important here, well, and then we find out, you know, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. I'm sure they said more than just repent because we know in the context that that's what John the Baptist did. He tells people to repent. And then Jesus also tells people to repent in Mark chapter 1, but he also says repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. And what is the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ. And I would define repentance pretty simply. I've, I've said this before. Um, repentance is to turn away from something, to turn away from an attitude or value or belief against God and then to turn towards him. Repentance always has two parts. There's always two parts to it. And so they were proclaimed to repentance. And then as a result, in verse 13, they cast out many demons, they anoint with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. And so there's, there's some great outcomes that happen as a result. Now, I just want to pause here and note, um, you know, a couple weeks ago, I think I talked about uh, the, the importance of gospel proclamation. I think I did that on Easter. Like, at the end of the day, our job as disciples is to proclaim repentance and to proclaim the good news. And then Tabitha, during the sharing time, and we'll have an open mic sharing time um, after, the, after, uh, after the sermon, I mentioned that the way that you learn how to proclaim the gospel is by being trained. Like, that's the only way you can learn, is you need to, you need to, view, you need to see 
the model of other people. And then you need to be delegated some authority to go out and do it. And then someone needs to go with you to equip you. Okay? And what Jesus was doing here is he was equipping them to be able to go out and share the gospel. And he was also equipping them to experience rejection. He was giving them rejection training. And so, like I said, a lot of the ministries of this church don't happen in this building. Okay? They happen outside this building. And so what I want to invite you to is Mohammed and I, um, on Tuesdays, we go to San Jose State. Okay? And we do, um, not every week, but we're trying to. We try as, as, often as, we possible, as often as possible, we do open air preaching, okay? which is terrifying. I'll be honest, it's terrifying. And I think you, know, you probably have a range of different views about it. Okay? Um, and yet we do this open air preaching for a number of reasons. One of them is it's training and resistance. It's res- I call it resistance training. Okay? Because you will encounter resistance when you do open-air preaching. There will, pe- there will be people who ignore you. And I think it's easy to be like, oh, wow, they're, they're rejecting us. But there is the aspect that this is a testimony against them. And we want to invite you to be a part of that. And you don't have to actually preach, but we also hand out Bibles. And I, just, I would love for you to experience someone turning you down. Okay? Because that's resistance training. And we also do conversational evangelism, too. You know, when, when Muhammad doesn't, uh, doesn't want to go out or whatever, I think he's missed one. He's missed one. I should say doesn't want to go out. My bad. Um, when, when, when there was one time, you know, something happened and he wasn't able to make it, and I thought, okay, we'll do conversational evangelism. And that's where I'll, I'll take someone with me, and we'll go out and have conversations with, um, with students. And that's another type of training, because it's important for you to see, model what evangelism look like, looks like. And then some, so I'll take a turn at sharing the gospel with people and then have someone else watch, and then I will let that other person go as well, and then that's part of the training, right? And what's, what's beautiful about it is almost invariably, we will encounter resistance, okay? We will encounter rejection, and it's fantastic. So would you embrace resistance training, okay? You think I'm talking about working out, but I'm not exactly. All right, my last point, and this is the last section um, about expecting grudges. This is verse 14. King Herod heard of it. Heard of what? Probably the disciples going out, right? This is where context is important. So King Herod heard of these disciples preaching, casting out demons, anointing with oil many who were sick and healed, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give up to half of my kingdom. 
And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Some of you, most, probably most of you have read this already in, in your life groups because we studied the passage in advance of the sermon. If this is one of your first times reading it or the initial reading, what's your impression? What's the feeling you get when you first read this passage? I'm really asking. <laughs> Not a good way to go. Not good. Yes. Yes. What else? What was that? Ew. Ew. Okay. Ew. What else? This is a disturbing narrative. And the writer, Mark, he's got to know this is incredibly disturbing. Like, this is Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones, right? This is, like, really wild what's happening. And the question we've got to ask ourselves as we encounter this is, why is this in here? And, and why here? Why put this here? Why does this matter? Well, if the context is resistance, well, we've, we've got to start thinking about it in terms of resistance, right? If, in, in terms of some kind of rejection and what's going on. And by the way, let me, let me point out something, because this is nonlinear storytelling. So let me just first establish that. This is nonlinear storytelling. So nonlinear storytelling is like a Christopher Nolan movie, meaning like it doesn't, it doesn't move in, in, in chronological order, right? So this is a flashback. How do we know it's a flashback? In verse 14. You know, King Herod heard of it. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So it's trying to explain to us how Herod is making sense of the disciples' success. And the way he's making sense of it, and this is where you're going to see this is a very different culture. He's just like, well, I beheaded a guy. Maybe that guy came back alive. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's his conclusion, right? That's like his first thought. You know what I mean? And like, how does that your first thought? Well, they don't live in a culture of unbelief, right? This, this is a superstitious culture. And they're like, and supernatural things happen. So he's like, oh, well, maybe the guy beheaded, maybe his head went back on. Okay. And now he's going out and doing stuff, right? That's his conclusion because of the success of the disciples, okay? And then we get this flashback of how John lost his head, which is because of a girl dancing. I mean, it's like a super creepy story, right? Um, and so, but, but let's, take, let's go through this and, and, and examine what's happening. So it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, okay? And we'll talk about her in a second, but just know that in verse 20 or so, Herod, he, he knows his wife wants to kill him, to kill John the Baptist, but he doesn't because John the Baptist is perplexed. And I think someone, um, I think it was John Kim mentioned this a little while ago about the resurrection of Jesus and about Christians, is that the way the, the, um, the Jews responded to early followers of Jesus is they were perplexed by them. Okay, they were confused by the early Christians because they couldn't understand why they did what they did. 
And you see that same idea about Herod regarding John, that he knows John is a righteous and holy man. He knows this guy's a good dude, and yet he's calling, he's calling out him and his wife for having an illicit relationship. Okay, so John recognizes something good about John the Baptist. But, you know, Herod's married. And by the way, Herod is the Roman king. He's the Roman king over Judea in that area, okay, because they're under the Roman Empire. Um, and so Herod's wife, who happens to share part of his name, which is kind of weird, um, Herodias, is, uh, is married to Herod, and yet, and it, there's so many questions, right? Also, apparently, seems to be married to his brother Philip's, to his brother Philip, okay? And so what Herod, what John the Baptist has done is he's saying, hey, you know what? It's not lawful for you um, to be married to your brother's wife, okay? That's not, that's not good. It's not a good thing. And so here's... Here's kind of the truth to that. Over my past 30 years of being in Christian leadership, here's one thing I'm convinced of. Whenever you tell someone who they shouldn't date or marry or uh, sleep with, you're going to risk getting a grudge. Okay? Don't, don't tell someone who they're not supposed to date or marry or be attracted to because you will risk getting a grudge. Because if there's one thing in our culture, one thing that our culture worships it's romance and sex. Okay, we worship, we love romance and sex. We, we worship it. And how do I know that? Well, every culture is skeptical of some things, and our culture is skeptical of the supernatural, but we love romance and sex and individual freedom. And how do I know that? Because we swim in it every day. Like, we, we literally, like, swim in this stuff. Like, 90% of music out there, um, especially aimed at 15-year-old girls, which is my musical taste, um, <laughs> is my... I have the musical taste of a 15-year-old girl. Let me just clarify that. Um, um, we just swim in that. And so when I think about, like, uh, my daughter, who was introduced to Taylor Swift at a very young age, mostly because of me, mainly because of my fault, um, like, we swim in this, like, idea that romance saves us. And even among, and among different aspects of our culture, whether it's the LGBTQ movement or whether it's uh, regarding abortion, no one wants to be told who they are supposed to be attracted to, who they are supposed to marry, who they're supposed to date, and who they're supposed to have sex with. Because we see romance as saving you. And if romance saves you, then when you tell someone that they can't do it, you're saying, well, you can't be saved that way. That's why, it's so, that's why people get so upset and bear a grudge um, about being told who they can date or marry, because you're denying them salvation, okay? But that's where our culture is in this regard. And so one of the messages I think um, God is trying to communicate to us is you need to expect that people will bear, will bear grudges. In fact, I'm going to guess that many of you here today have at some point had a grudge against Christians or Christianity. Because it has given you parameters about who you are supposed to sleep or not sleep with, who you're supposed to be attracted to or not attracted to or who you're supposed to marry or not marry. But that's, but that's in the context of repentance. I mean, Jesus also called people to repentance around sex. In fact, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, even the thoughts you have can be a form of adultery. Because God is constantly calling us to repent of the things that we worship that are not him. And so uh, what's, what's, what's my point in all of this? We should not be surprised if our culture has a grudge against Christians and against Christianity because we all have grudges. We all, we all have a kind 
of resistance. And the way to look at this section of the Bible is to recognize that each of us have this resistance against God. Okay, and what he teaches. And so what, right now, what I'd like you to do, and this, this might be the most enjoyable part of the sermon. Okay, it might be the most enjoyable part. I want you to, and wait, please wait till I finish giving you an instruction before you do this. Um, I want you to turn to someone. Okay, just wait for me to finish the instruction. I want you to turn to someone whom you know a little bit about. Okay, and this is a great opportunity for husbands and wives to turn to one another, for instance, right? Um, or siblings, or, uh, you know, parents to child. And I just want to, I want you to say to the other person, you have resistance, okay? You have resistance, okay? And I want you to say it kind of with a smile, like the way in the South they say, bless your heart, okay? Bless your heart. I just want to turn to that, I just want you to turn to that person and just, um, and say, hey, you know what? Okay, and then I want to give the other person who you say it to permission to say, so do you. Okay, so do you. So just take like 30 seconds and, and do that. Okay. It doesn't take that long. It doesn't take that long. It doesn't take that long. And if you're, if you're online today, this is one of those things where you're like, hey, you have resistance, and you can put a little smiley face on there, you know what I mean, to like, to like ease the blow a little bit, right? Because you may not be used to saying that, that directly. You know, this is one of those things where you just want to look at someone and go, yeah, you know. Like, this is kind of you, it, but it's hard to say it, right? It can be hard to say it to someone because it feels like a kind of attack, right? And yet we all know in our heart of hearts this is true about who we are, okay? And that's, so what are we supposed to do with this? Well, number one, I think we need to expect resistance, okay? This is what it means to be a Christian. You need to expect resistance. And everything good that you want to do, there will be resistance. There will be resistance from other people because there is resistance in you. There is resistance in you. And so when it comes to the question about why bother, why bother having a hard conversation if you know it's not going to make a difference? Because Jesus bothered, okay? Jesus bothered. Jesus decided that he would bother with us. And how do I know that? Well, I, a couple weeks ago, I preached from Mark 16. And in Mark 16, which is the resurrection, at the very end in verse 14, Jesus appears to his disciples, and he says in 1614, he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. And what does this unbelief, hardness of heart mean? It's because after he had resurrected, he appeared to Mary Magdalene and some other women, and he also appeared to another two disciples, and none of the disciples believed their testimony. Because the disciples themselves had resistance. There was resistance in them. And if the disciples, who are, if anything, the epitome of good soil, one of the parables that Jesus teaches, one of the first ones is the parable of the soils. And the disciples are good soil because we know that the gospel multiplies forward through them, through those 11. And yet they had resistance in them 
They had unbelief in them and hardness of heart where they, did, where they were stubborn and they didn't want to listen. And Jesus still bothered. And if you're here today, you know, Jesus bothered with you. And all of you have had resistance at some point, and yet the fact that you're here today means God broke through at some point for you in, in your resistance. Even if you're just here at the invitation of someone else, God broke through resistance for you. He overcame resistance. And that, that overcoming was demonstrated by his life and his death and his resurrection to overcome anything in pursuing us. Because God has been in pursuit of you over generations, over days and weeks and months and years. He is chasing you down to overcome resistance because God wanted to bother with you. And that's why you're here today. And so I want to give you permission at the same time to be able to move on. Okay? It's okay to move on. Right? It's okay to be able to say, hey, you know what? Um, I tried and I proclaimed the gospel to this person, it's, okay, it's actually okay to be able to move on because Jesus moved on from his hometown. And I think Jesus moved on from his hometown. Num number one, first, I don't think Jesus regretted going to his hometown. I don't think he thought, oh man, I shouldn't have gone there. Okay, I don't think he thought that at all because it was all part of resistance training, number one. Number two, I think Jesus went to his hometown because he was like, you know what? I can't reach these people, but maybe one of my disciples can because he recognized the contours of his own limitations as a human being, because that's what discipleship means, right? You appoint and have other people. You delegate your authority to other people because they can reach people that you can't. And so if you're, bump, if you're bumping your head against the wall you know, and trying to reach someone, it's okay to move on. Find someone who's willing to hear you and ask God to show you or raise up another person or another means to reach that person. Because it's not just about you, okay? It's not just about you. And by the way, the testimony isn't against you. The testimony is against that other person. Right? That's why you shake off the dust. And then the last thing I want to encourage you with, because Jesus bothered, is the whole context of Mark chapter 6 and this whole Herod account, this nasty, nasty account, is that this is a flashback, okay? And what that means, if it's a flashback, is... Herod had cut off John the Baptist's head. And again, he was kind of an idiot. He was probably drunk when this whole thing happened. He was drunk. He cut off John the Baptist's head, gives it on a platter. It's just a, it is a terrible, terrible way to go. Um, and that's the context of when Jesus is like, hey, I think now is a good time for the disciples to go out. <laughs> okay, so can you imagine? You're Jesus' disciples. Everyone knows that John the Baptist's head got chopped off. And Jesus is like, yeah. This is the time. This is the time for you to be sent out. And you're like, now? Now is the time to double down? No, this is the time to retreat. But Jesus said, no, now is the time. Because resistance is what advances the kingdom. Resistance is what advances the kingdom. That's the, bed, that's the foundation of how the kingdom advances, is resistance itself, is persecution. And Jesus says, now is the time to go. And by the way, this is not the last time that a leader is executed and the disciples are sent to hell. Because it's all part of resistance training. John the Baptist is the precursor to Jesus, and so he goes in a, in a, in a horrific, he, he dies a horrific death, and the disciples are sent out because it's a precursor of what's going to happen in the future about Jesus' death himself. So Jesus was crafting 
resistance training for his disciples. And he is crafting resistance training for you today because he bothered with you. You can bother. Let's pray. God, would we not live in fear and paralysis of the resistance in us and in others? God, would you manifest courage and boldness in the face of resistance to proclaim the gospel to bother, even when we know it will be unsuccessful? Because you did that on our behalf. Because you broke through resistance for us. God, thank you for your love for us in Jesus. In your name, amen.